G'day everyone, it's Greg Ryan and welcome to episode 19 of Rare and Resilient 1 in 5,000 podcast. I'm extremely honoured to have a really special guest with us today. It's Dr. Mark Levitt, who is the Chief of the Division of Colorectal and Pelvic Reconstruction at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Mark is internationally recognised as specialising in conditions affecting the newborn, paediatric and adolescent population affected with anorectal malformation. He has been a driving force around the world in enhancing the care of children with colorectal and pelvic reconstructive needs through the development of specialised, integrated and collaborative surgical centres. He has cared for children from 50 states and 76 countries around the world and has performed more than 10,000 paediatric colorectal procedures, has written three textbooks and authored over 250 scientific articles on these subjects, and most importantly, has hosted hundreds of surgeons from hospitals across the globe who sought out education and training on advanced colorectal surgical techniques management of patients and research outcomes. So, Mark, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. Am I supposed to say good day? You can say good day if you like. That's all right. Okay, great. Great to be here. Thank you uh, very much for inviting me. No, as I said, it's an honor to have you. So if you'd just like to give us a bit of a background on how you got into pediatric colorectal surgery and just a little bit of a background of yourself, sir. Oh, sure. My pleasure. I, um, I think that answer is a little bit serendipitous. I um, was a medical student in New York and I was really interested in surgery before I even went to medical school. I was the, I was the kid who, when I came home, there was a broken vase. All the pieces were sitting on the table, a bit of glue, and my mom communicated to me my responsibility. So I was the one putting those things back together in the house. And when I was a medical student, I really liked my pediatrics rotation. And I lamented the fact that I couldn't do pediatrics and surgery. I really was disappointed until a very senior medical student, two years older than I was, said, you know, Mark, there's a specialty that's called pediatric surgery. You can actually do both. And I said, ah, that's my, that's my choice. And then I signed up for an elective. Um, in my final year of medical school in pediatric surgery, just to learn more about the subject before I applied. And the, the elective was uh, already filled by another student. And I was disappointed that I couldn't do that elective at the time that I wanted. And that other student turned out was a good friend of mine who said, there's another elective in the book that I also saw with some guy named Alberto Pena. Maybe he could take a student for that month. And I checked it out and they could take a student and I walked in and there I was. And I had no idea what I was walking into. And I watched for the next month, Alberto take care of very complicated patients from all over the world in a, a way that I had never seen done before because the patients had problems in all different parts of their body, the gynecologic system, the urologic system. And I saw all this as a medical student and he was doing everything. He was the gynecologist. He was the urologist. He was the surgeon. He was the social worker. He was the psychologist. And at that moment, the idea was born that we must have a collaborative approach with lots of disciplines represented 
to help a complicated patient. Well, that launched my relationship with him from that moment where then I trained some, I did some training with him. Then I uh, finished my general surgery residency and my pediatric surgery residency all in New York. And then he and I worked together um, as partners. I was uh, 25 years his junior. Um, and then together we were recruited to start the first ever colorectal center in Cincinnati at Cincinnati Children's, thanks to his vision and my vision of actually doing a true center, which we actually never thought would happen. And the Cincinnati Children's idea that they wanted to be the place where this was launched. And then we, there we went in 2005, uh, a mere 16 years ago. And since then, I have really worked hard to train. I'm really happy that you mentioned in my bio, most importantly, train, you use that term, you edited that, so that was your idea, because I think that's the biggest bang for the buck, is training people in this specialty, because there weren't enough of us that knew the, the intricacies. And then we launched this multidisciplinary program in Cincinnati with engagement from gynecology, urology, GI, neurosurgery, orthopedics, train people. I did it again in Columbus, Ohio. And now as of two years ago, have been asked to do it in Washington, DC. And now we have programs in many parts of the world, as you well know, in your own city, Sebastian King, my good friend, has launched a remarkably wonderful program at Royal Children's with the government support, first of its kind in the world. The yes. government said, we back this idea, incredible. And we have colleagues around the world in multiple cities. And I, wanted, I really want to have a center in every country. That's my mission. With your leadership and the, the way you travel around the world and address conferences and that, and I've been very fortunate to be at a lot of those conferences, it's, you can see the diversity of the amount of um, surgeons come from so many different countries to listen to you and to hear experiences about the multidisciplinary centres. It's, I think in the probably last five years, do you think it's probably improved out of sight as far as the, the knowledge? Oh, yeah. I, what's, what's amazing to me is if you inspire a smart mind to focus on this field, then you get that many more exponentially exciting ideas. So we just had too few people that cared about this area of medicine. And now, and I'm really proud of that responsibility that I took on. And I think when I retire, I hope they say that I was the one that helped foster that level of integration amongst more people. Um, because I think that's the biggest bang for the buck. Because of course you can show someone how to do an operation, but if they are inspired to then do that in their own city and develop their own team, they help so many hundreds of more patients, thousands, than I could ever possibly help just by taking care of those patients myself. Um, yeah, so that's been the, that's been the mission. I mean, there's a lot of places in the world that are very underrepresented with colorectal care. Um, we just have to find 
surgeons and nurses that are excited about the about the field. Yep. What do you think has been the difference nowadays that compared to like when you and Dr. Pena first started the center in Cincinnati in 2005? What do you think has been the greatest advancements in the care for ARM patients since then? So I would say, well, first of all, we've we've definitely come up with some brand new ideas. Some major advances, I think, are the bowel management program. Just a focused attention every day for four or five days and then good long-term follow-up to try to get a patient clean with essentially nursing training, nursing really knowing how, we, how to become an expert in, in getting a patient clean. That's one. Two is, and this is in no particular order, is absolutely the integration of other specialties because urology and bladder management is just, has revolutionized the field of ARM. I think those patients were not getting the best care. And as you may recall, we had many more renal disease patients. Kidney transplant was not uncommon. Now it's exceedingly rare. And it's, I think it's because it's, the patients are getting better urologic care. That's changed dramatically. Right. The patients are getting better gynecologic care. Um, there is not this nervousness when the child reaches puberty that there's going to be some problem with menstruation. Now we have a very good idea of the anatomy because of the collaboration. The patients are getting um, better gastrointestinal care, motility care, medical care of their colon. And I also think we've engaged orthopedics and neurosurgery. So decisions about tethered cord, for example, are, are more sophisticated. There's some new operations that have been developed. For example, the, uh, the standard PSARP has evolved. Uh, the incision has gotten smaller. Our understanding of the anatomy has improved. We've added laparoscopy uh, to many uh, kinds of cases, uh, as an example. Uh, so um, there's been a lot of improvement. I, I mean, I could go on and on with uh, the innovations. And transition, where do you think that that is heading now compared to what it was? I know that's it's a passionate subject of mine as everyone will know when they listen to my podcasts you mean can, because given your advanced age definitely my advanced age i can tell you at the moment <laughs> well i will tell you of all the parts of our field that probably is the most efficient the process of getting a teenager and young adult cared for and then getting adult providers engaged we're probably the most uh, behind in that field. I mean, I think it's true across the board of medicine. They, if in congenital heart and cystic fibrosis, those folks have done really well. Think about a cystic fibrosis patient. When you and I were kids, they did not survive until you know maybe their 30s. And now oh. it's very common for them to be 70 years old, no problem. And that's because of integrated care in a transition program, congenital heart the same. So we have a mission. Um, there are a couple of places that have taken this on. I'm um, very passionate about trying to solve this. It's very, very difficult because the same level of integration 
is required at the adult level and we're working uh, slowly on it. There are a couple of people in the world, for example, that have trained both in pediatric and adult colorectal surgery. I know of three in the entire world. Would you like to name them so people are aware, especially the adults? Sure, well, uh, I'm very proud of my colleague, Ali Geisher in Columbus, Ohio, who um, has been trained uh, by me in pediatric colorectal surgery and then went on to an adult colorectal surgical training and now works in Columbus. There's a, a woman named Erin Teeple on the East Coast uh, in Wilmington, uh, Delaware, who has trained in adult colorectal surgery and pediatric surgery and pediatric colorectal surgery. In addition, there's a fellow uh, by the name of uh, Mark, and his last name is escaping me, um, who works in Munich, Germany, uh, with my good friend Stuart Jose, who is a fully trained colorectal surgeon and then went back and became a pediatric surgeon. The model is Paris. Paris has done an amazing job, Neckar Children's Hospital, with yeah. transition formally with an adult program. I don't know if the adults have formally trained in pediatrics, but they're certainly very knowledgeable and have sort of done on-the-job training. Sabine Sarnaki is the chief of bead surgery at Neckar. And um, I, was, I was there watching how they did it. And the uh, teenager would come into a room and meet the pediatric providers and the adult providers together. And then henceforth, the visits were at the adult uh, facility. We're trying to do something uh, similar here in Washington, D.C. It's very limited, and uh, it's obviously an important uh, goal for the next decade. That's wonderful. If we can go back to sort of like when you first have a uh, ARM patient come to you, what's your process of talking to the family and the parents because i imagine you don't necessarily see them depending where they're born of course but what's your sort of like process of when a child's born with arm well obviously we have our share of newborns that either are born at our busy children's hospital or transferred to us but you're quite right the vast majority of them are born elsewhere have their colostomy and then they come to me for either definitive surgery or they had their surgery elsewhere and they come to us for bowel management or for reoperative surgery, unfortunately, which is still an enormous problem. We should talk a little bit about that and my goal of trying to never do a reoperation again because we have better primary surgery. I once read there's statistics like in some of the main centers like a third of the surgeries at one stage were redos. Would that be a, a, around the right percentage? At the at the devoted colorectal centers, a lot of patients who are referred who are referred for soiling problems um, have um, are found to have anatomic issues, and yep. uh, um, those patients need need reoperations. I would say yes that at least half of my work is reoperative surgery. Um, so we need to stop that. The original surgery needs to be done better. But um, let me um, go back. The, I think the thing to remember is that there is not a parent I've ever met who knew anything about the subject when the baby popped out 
and looked beautiful, brand new, full term. Nothing expected was a problem. And then someone announces to them that there's a problem with the colorectal system. That shock of something being wrong and honestly having taken for granted the fact that everyone poops normally, I think is very important part of the drama here in this field. <clears throat> so a surgeon who takes care of these patients needs to understand that fact and obviously needs to shepherd that patient through a challenging process, often a newborn operation like a colostomy, a reconstructive operation, a colostomy closure. That's three surgeries within the first year of life for many of these kids. Of course, some can have a single operation in the newborn period. And then uh, management, medical management for a few years, and then getting them ready for school in, into normal underwear. This is very atypical for surgeons. Surgeons are used to a patient who comes in with a surgical problem, they solve the problem, they improve the anatomy. And then like, for example, when I was 12 years old, one of the things that influenced me to become a surgeon, I had appendicitis, went to the hospital, had terrible pain, couldn't sit in this chair in the emergency room. I remember it like it was yesterday. Some surgeon took me, solved my problem. And the next day I felt much better. And I'm like, wow, I want to do that. That's mostly surgery. ARM surgery is not that. ARM surgery requires an excellent anatomic reconstruction for sure. You have to do that to get a good result. But then the patient is not mysteriously cured. Yes. It's months, it's years. It may be a lifelong tinkering, the tinkering, the minute changes are what gets you a good result. And I think that's one of the reasons why many surgeons don't do it. <laughs> I like to say that if this field was easy, everyone would do it. But I will tell you, first of all, that I need to understand that the parents are not as excited about the anatomic reconstruction as they are about the functional result. As surgeons, we're very proud of our anatomy and our anatom anatomic creations, but that is not the answer. We are not done. And many surgeons wanna be done because that's their job. Fix the anatomy, the medical part goes to somebody else. In anorectal malformation surgery, you have to keep at it. You have to tinker. You have to get your nurses assembled to help you solve the patient's problem. And that's really, uh, that's really the ultimate challenge is the anatomy and then the function. And until we deliver on that functional result, we can't rest. Um, so, and I, when I meet a new family to answer your original question, that's, that's what we have to go over. And it's really the tinkering that makes the difference. I like to say that a complex colorectal operation takes about four hours, but to deliver a good result, you need 96 more hours of tinkering. Almost all of that is nursing care. Yes, they, they become so crucial, especially with the stoma care initially for the, when the colostomy gets surgery i'd imagine for the parents having a newborn with the colostomy you can see it uh, takes a lot of uh, the stress of that as well isn't it yeah i mean although i think if you make a proper colostomy 
most families would agree they'd rather change a colostomy bag than a diaper. But I do, I do believe it begins the bonding process. There's a daily extra step for parents and they become experts at the tinkering, but you need a partner. The families need a partner in surgery and in nursing to get them through. And, and I will say, you know, back to the redo discussion, why are there so many redos? People ask me. And my ex explanation is this. If you do an operation for an ARM you know, on a six-month-old and you don't put the anus in the correct location relative to the sphincters and the baby's colostomy is closed and they poop, no one knows that anything's wrong yet. They are pooping. Four years later, when it's time to potty train, they don't succeed because the anus is misaligned with their sphincters because of a surgical error. How is the surgeon supposed to fix their technique if they're only discovering their problem four years later? Imagine if you don't take a, my appendix out correctly, then two days later, I'm not well. Yes. And the surgeon needs to say to themselves, what did I do wrong that Mark is not cured by my appendectomy? But in ARM, four years go by before the surgeon says, could I have done my operation four years late, uh, earlier any better? It's very difficult to get better at something when you don't know whether you did it right or wrong for four years. And I think, think that's the problem. You think a lot of the issue gets around that when the child's born and they go to the local hospital or whatever, and pediatric surgeons might have never seen an ARM patient before? Well, there's no question that experience makes a big difference in this field. And frankly, in many fields, there have been nice studies that have shown Cardiac surgery in adults gets better results the more you do. So that's definitely true. Um, I will tell you the, the, num the numbers in a typical uh, pediatric surgical training program in the United States, a trainee, uh, we call them fellows. Uh, you would call them uh, registrars, I believe. Yep. Um, would in their two years of training in peat surgery will probably do something like 12 ARM cases. Once they graduate, the average is one case per year in a finished surgeon. And how can you possibly gain enough experience? Which is one of the reasons why I've been a big advocate for regionalization of care and devoted teams to build their experience. I learned that from Alberto. He, you know, obviously did the most number of cases at that time in the world, and he got better and better and better. So uh, unfortunately, that means that patients may need to travel, but surgeons that want to do these operations really need to make a commitment to gain the experience. And where do you gain the experience? From others who have the experience. Yes. And that's why I've been so focused on training. And I can tell you, as we, as we mentioned, the most American expression is bang for the buck is to invest in training a surgeon who then goes forth 
and then takes care of their own group of patients. That's wonderful. I find a lot of discussion lately on the support groups where a lot of parents ask the question whether they should keep the colostomy and not actually go through and have the PSARP surgery. What's your feelings on that, sir? I have very strong feelings about that. I don't Please want share them. To have a, I don't want any kid to have a colostomy. I want everyone, I want those kids typical, normal, just like all the other kids. And my answer is the pull-through should be done, the colostomy should be closed, and with proper bowel management and good nursing care, I'm very confident that we can get patients clean mechanically. One of the other advances that I failed to mention was the Malone appendicostomy, for example. Yeah, I was going to ask so, about the Malone. <laughs> yeah, there are pa patients that don't have the innate anatomy. They don't have the sphincters. They don't have the capacity to have their own voluntary bowel movements, but they can be cleaned mechanically by emptying the colon once a day. That's what we call bowel management. And I uh, think that most patients would prefer being clean through that route than having a, a permanent stoma. There are the rare patient, particularly those that don't ambulate, for example, where a stoma may be more practical, but the vast, vast majority of patients can be perfectly clean, even mechanically with the stool flowing through the normal route via the um, anal opening. So right. I, I, I don't think that a permanent colostomy and certainly not at that stage. I mean, you can throw in the towel and say, we need a colostomy later in life, but don't give up on the chance at six months of age to give that kid, because you would be amazed how many patients actually develop bowel control, even if they were predicted that they would never achieve bowel control, again, with proper nursing care and tinkering with their medical regimen. Right. Thank, thanks for sharing that. It's really important for listeners to hear it. The other topic that always gets brought up, and I spoke to Richard Wood a couple of months ago about this, is dilatations. I know that he was involved in a study with patients that had the choice of doing dilatations or not. Where do you sit on that at the moment? Well, as you well know, Richard and I um, have a long friendship and uh, collaboration, which actually started in Ghana, where an Alp Numanglu brought his fellow and I brought my fellow and together we did a uh, trip to cultivate a, a relationship with the surgeons in Accra, where we have helped develop a very lovely colorectal center, one of the best in the world. We know about uh, Accra Ghana because we, uh, we've organized through the foundation for some uh, kids to get surgery and we've recent, we recently sent over 14 boxes of stoma supplies to Accra. That's awesome. I mean, uh, it might be nice, actually, Greg, if you want to want to really interview someone from there. I can give you some um, contacts. Uh, there's a phenomenal group of my friends there that, I mean, Accra does such a good job. I, I remember, and I'll get back to your question in a second about yep. dilatations is an important one. But um, I met Richard on a trip and he was a trainee. And we were on a mission trip to try to improve the care in Ghana. And I was very impressed. Richard is a 
first of all, wonderful human being, very kind to the patients and a beautiful technical surgeon. And I said to him, you know, if this is your passion, you need to get an extra year of training uh, of colorectal. And uh, Alpa, my good friend at, from Cape Town, from Red Cross, and I sort of schemed to get Richard additional training. Um, and he came and he joined me in Columbus. And then everyone fell in love with him and said, Mark, we got to figure out a way to keep him. And I was quite conflicted, I will say, because I didn't want to steal him from Africa because I felt Africa needed him too. But we came to the conclusion that with that training and keeping him as my partner, we would actually be able to help Africa better because he could participate in the training of more individuals who then could help more patients. And I think that platform actually has led to the care of more patients than had he remained in South Africa. And of course, now that I've moved to Washington, D.C., he's taken over um, in Columbus and has maintained a phenomenal program that is uh, I'm extremely proud of. The story about Ghana is that there was a, a child in a family that had applied for citizenship in another country. And their reasoning was they wanted to get better care for their child with a colorectal problem. And they felt that they couldn't get it in Ghana. And they, the minister of immigration contacted me and said, is this a valid claim for citizenship in another country? And I said, you are in great shape in Ghana because they are awesome there. And I'm sorry to disappoint the family, but that's not a reason to immigrate out of Ghana because in Ghana, you have some superb, uh, a superb team. Um, so I'm very proud. And I want, you know, every country needs something like that uh, done. And, you know, I would say right now we're at about 25 countries that have something like that happening. But there are, I think, 110 something countries or more uh, in the world. So I got a lot more work to do before I can rest. Anyway, related to the dilation question. Richard and I really worked very hard to design a database in Columbus. And I worked with a number of colleagues around the country to try to create, and the world, a consortium. You probably know of our consortium, the PCPLC. um, And there's a nice website, pcplc.org. The Pediatric Colorectal and Pelvic Learning Consortium. And we are collecting data. Each of our centers is collecting data in the same way so we can analyze our results with the same questions in mind. Anyway, one of the things that Richard and I did was first we surveyed families and it turns out that the dilation process was the most stressful part of the entire aspect of their colorectal care. The other thing I recognized that I wondered if dilations were absolutely mandatory um, because they were pretty standard for 40 years. And one of my favorite quotes from one of my professors is that it's not the unanswered questions that matter the most, it's the unquestioned answers. So dilation for every single patient after a PSARB was standard. And Richard and I said, we're questioning that because the families basically have told us, please question this, 
we hate doing dilations. Well, the only way to answer this question scientifically is to do a randomized controlled trial. That's the research term where we basically took every patient who underwent a primary PSARP for an anorectal malformation and the families agreed in advance to be randomized into standard dilation protocol or no dilation at all. And I'm sure Richard gave you some details about this study. Yes, um, yes he did. Um, and essentially what it found was that if you didn't do dilation or if you did di do dilation, you were at a similar risk of developing a stricture, something like 15%. And what we concluded is if you did develop a stricture, the treatment is pretty straightforward. You have to do a minor, what's called a Heineke Mikulitz HM, anoplasty to enlarge the stricture. And that really solves the problem. And you can do that at the time of the colostomy closure. So why go through all of the dilations every day, twice a day, if you just don't touch the anus, wait two months and recognize that about 10 to 15% of the kids will need that extra very minor procedure when they're undergoing surgery for their colostomy anyway. So we now can, with knowledge, offer a family dilation or not dilation. I can tell you so far, they've all chosen to roll the dice on the 10 to 15% risk of a stricture because the downside is not so bad because you just do a minor revision at the time of the colostomy closure. So I also think that doing a good anoplasty with no tension and good blood supply certainly affects the, the likelihood of getting a stricture. And we're very focused obviously on that. Um, so we don't do dilations anymore. That's wonderful. Um, and I think, I think patients are gratified. And my hope is that other centers around the world will adopt the same protocol. And the only way ever that they could do so is if they were backed up by research, which is why we did the study. Yeah, that's that's great news. And I know there's a very good paper that has been written on, on that subject that gets a lot of attention. Now, one, one of the questions we have a lot is when the child has the, has the closure, the amount of stool and the skin irritation, like after they had the closure, is a big issue for parents. What's your uh, best advice in that regard? Sort of like, how long does it take the body to start pooping and the acidity from the mucus, et cetera, to settle down? You know, that's pretty a short term problem after colostomy closure, usually about two weeks. The skin has never seen stool. So obviously a rash can develop and the stools move relatively quickly because the distal segment, the unused segment needs to learn how to adopt, adapt rather to um, learn how to absorb water and thicken the stool. So it's a two or three week problem that is probably mostly well managed with some good perineal creams and good care. And the number one goal is to not let stool uh, sit uh, stuck to the skin. So good cleaning of the area and multiple diaper changes. And at three weeks, it's usually not a problem anymore. Then actually the problem switches 
to constipation. And I think that's the point where a lot of surgeons drop the ball, where they don't aggressively manage constipation. And the patients, somewhat unbeknownst to them, are constipated. They're still stooling in their diaper. Over time, the colon dilates up. And at four years, when it's time to start potty training, now they have an enlarged colon that is harder to empty and requires a significant dose of laxatives. So we're pretty aggressive about watching for that switch. And as soon as the stools start to thicken, we start treating with laxatives. So almost all of our patients are on laxatives about three or four weeks after their colostomy closure, just to keep them flowing. That's what matters in the first couple of years. And then starting at about age two and a half, I would say, we work towards what I call a good bowel movement pattern, which I would consider one or two well-formed stools per day. And the way to achieve that is with a diet that gives stool some bulk, some added fiber, water-soluble fiber, and a dose of laxative. And I consider a laxative something that provokes stool, namely something with senna, the other option is bisacodyl, and not, 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 have you heard any emphasis? Yes. A stool, a stool softener, because it's important to remember that um, a stool softener does not help these kids. In fact, it makes them worse. Children trying to potty train with ARM, you have to recognize, have a surgically created anal canal. So they don't have the typical sensation of the anal canal because they don't have an anal canal. It was surgically created by connecting the end of the colon to the skin. And they have somewhat good sphincters or not so good sphincters. So they're missing two key components of their continence. Therefore, they are basically dependent on the stretch of the rectum, filling with stool and feeling that stretch. If you have loose stool, because the stool softener has been given, you never feel the stretch, you can't develop bowel control. So I want a bulky stool, not bulky to the point of constipation, but enough of a bulk that they can feel that. That's a good pattern. If you can get them to one stool per day, most of the patients can translate that into potty training. And if you don't succeed in doing that, then you kick in with bowel management at about age three or four to get them clean and in normal underwear. That leads on to when do you recommend that enemas get introduced if the laxatives aren't working? Well, I would answer that with whatever time that child, according to the family's choice, should be in normal underwear. And everyone's different. You may have a nursery school that requires a child to not come with diapers, and you may want to start bowel management at age three. You may have a child who they don't worry about that until they're off to kindergarten, which is age five. But essentially, at age five, or certainly four, I believe all children should be in normal underwear. Okay. Now, and, and therefore, if they're not, if they have not achieved that with potty training strategies using the help of laxatives, then that's the time to start bowel management. 
Okay. Now getting on to the bowel management, can you give us a um, more detailed explanation of what the bowel management boot camp is like? Sure. So um, it's very nursing run, a nurse practitioner uh, run. In the United States, we call them advanced practice providers because there are a number of different specialties in nursing that can play that role. Every country I know is a little bit different. And basically what we do is we make an assessment of the patient's anatomy, number one responsibility, because if there's any anatomic issue, that ought to be fixed first. Although I will tell you, even if you don't have the perfect anatomy, you can still do bowel management with enemas and then get the anatomy fixed a little bit later because that happens. We have eight-year-olds, for example, in whom the anatomy is not right. The anus is not centered within the sphincter. So what I will do is a reoperation and a Malone at the same time. Right. And then bowel management thereafter, now that they have improved anatomy with the hope then one day, maybe a year later, their improved anatomy now allows them to have normal bowel control. So that's just an example, but assess the anatomy and then basically come up with a regimen that empties their colon mechanically with an enema, with the right cocktail, which for us involves saline, plus usually an additive that provokes the stool to empty. There are nice ways of doing that with something, with a product that has a a balloon and a self-controlled opening and closing of the, of the enema, for example, to make the patient more independent, or that can be switched one day to a more comfortable location, namely the umbilicus, the belly button, where you connect the appendix, that's the Malone procedure. But no matter what you do, it is a mechanical emptying of the colon with a flush of some sort. And the idea is that you empty the colon with a flush or an enema, and then for the next 24 hours, nothing passes, and then you flush the colon again. And in the intervening 23 and a half hours, you have a clean child that can be in normal underwear. Right. And how long does the, normally the bowel management program go for? Which, how many days? I know it varies in some centers. Well, usually a week. I would say maybe four or five days of x-rays. I will tell you one thing Richard would say uh, he and I are very proud of is uh, the bowel management program was evaluated. And this is an article I was involved with uh, way back in Cincinnati. And the claim at that point was success of 95% at one week. And that was published. And there are surgeons actually that are very proud and publish that number over and over again. But that was one week. And I can tell you, you can get almost anyone clean at one week. Now, can you get them clean at one year, two years? So Richard and I did the first study of its kind where we followed those patients very carefully and then documented our results at one year. And that's really correct bowel management, meaning what happened at a year? And we still did quite well. We were well over 80% in the, the four categories of patients that we take care of, ARM, Hirschsprungs, spinal disorders, and functional constipation. Interestingly, the hardest group for bowel management is Hirschsprungs. And I think it's because they don't have good functioning sphincters. Actually, their sphincters are sometimes too good. 
That's not an ARM patient's problem, um, but ARM was well in the 80% success at a year. So uh, yes, the program is a week, but then a lot of tinkering is required during the year to, if there's an accident, you get an x-ray, you may adjust the flush, et cetera. So uh, there's a lot of tinkering that's involved, a lot of interaction in our center. Mostly that's done by email with our nurses. Okay. Now, onto the Malone. How many uh, patients do you believe, ARM patients, end up going down the Malone track, roughly? Well, I, I would say overall ARM patients, about 75% of them should be able to develop their own bowel control and have voluntary bowel movements based on a good operation, good quality sacrum, good quality spine. 25%, even with a perfect operation, will not be able to achieve their own bowel control because they don't have the best sphincters and they don't have, or they have some spinal issue that's causing um, the bowels not to work well. And those are the ones that need bowel management. And then that's an enema. And I can tell you, many patients will choose the root for the enema to not be the rectum, but to be the appendix connected to the umbilicus. It's a personal choice. I can tell you in Europe, for example, many patients are using what's called peristine, which is a enema root. But I think a lot of it has to do with the comfort level of the surgeon in doing them alone. I do over a hundred Malones a year. It's done laparoscopically. It's a, an hour procedure. Most patients stay in the hospital one night it's very low uh, investment of, of a patient's uh, time and surgical morbidity. It's very straightforward operation if you do a lot of them. Um, and most families will prefer that. And the nice thing about it is it's much easier for the kid when they become a little older to administer their enema on their own without the help of their parents. Yeah, the so I'm a big fan. Oh, that's great. Now, one I always talk to any medical professionals about is the psychosocial mental health side of ARM patients. I know that's been a definite improvement in the recognition of it in the, the last few years. What's your take on that side of things, Mark? Well, I think that's another component of a full-fledged center is to offer that. Uh, there are a couple ways to do that. You need, I think, a committed psychologist to the program who meets every patient and decides whether they can be of use to that patient rather than the surgeon calling them when they need help. An integrated psychologist is vital. Child life is an important, um, I don't know if you, what, what you guys call that role in Australia, but the... Like a welfare officer here. Yeah, or social they, worker. They, they, they help the patient um, through sort of the details of they're about to have their surgery or how to administer them alone. Or all of the psychological aspects, the emotional component to the care, the what I would call the a burden of therapy. The burden of therapy is something that has basically been ignored. Um, we've really tried to investigate that. Honestly, that investigation is what led to the dilation study because yes we can get a patient's anus the correct size but at what cost to the family yes. so that's the burden of therapy i think it's an enormous component and every one of our centers that we collaborate with recognizes this and engages child life engages a psychologist 
a social worker, there's a lot of components to the care that traditional medicine would not normally think about. But for ARM patients, it's vital. So for parents who are seeing their children sort of like have a few issues or behavioral or when they're having enemas or so, what would you recommend them seeking some help from, from that point of view at an early age? Well, I think their center ought to offer that because it needs to be integrated because you need a psychologist that understands what the surgeons and medical doctors are trying to do. But I will tell you, a lot of this is physiologic and not psychologic. So you got to put the cart before the horse. There are many patients that get emotional help, psychological help, that actually what they needed was a reoperation and good bowel management. And then all the psychological and emotional problems go away because the kid's now clean and in normal underwear. So you have to focus on the anatomy and the physiology first but there still remains a lot of emotional psychological care you can provide. But I've met many patients that have had a significant amount of, of psychological help until I meet them. And then we do bowel management in one week and the whole family's different. So we have to recognize that physiologically is the, this is a physiologic problem, not a psychologic problem. Bowel, uh, fecal incontinence is a physiologic problem, not a psychologic problem. But yeah. obviously there is psychology to be managed. And I think the family needs to seek that, but their colorectal center needs to offer it. Yeah. So we might wrap it up now, Mark. It's, it's been truly wonderful. Thank you for being so open and sharing your knowledge and experience with us. It's um, I'm sure this is going to be very well received by our ARM community not only just patients and families, but also the medical professionals who hopefully um, will listen to the, the podcast as well. Can I just say, first of all, something about you and what you're trying to do? <laughs> if you like. You're, you're, you're a very modest guy. I, 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 I believe that the patient's care throughout the world has been dramatically improved by the engagement of the families. And you have been an incredible leader in that. I don't know if you remember, but I encouraged you to speak up. Yes, you and did. When you, and when you stood up in front of all of those surgeons in that course in Melbourne, Australia, people were in shock and in awe because they said, oh, my goodness, here is the audience, i.e. the patient who we need to deliver for. We need the patient to be satisfied with our care, not just the surgeon saying, hey, I did a good job. And you have provoked that in many to be outspoken. And I think one great advantage of our modern world is, is the social media and access and linkages of patients who never would have met. You yourself have told me that it took until your adult life to know that any patient existed in the world that had the same surgery that you did 52 and now, years. of course 52 years before you saw or heard of another patient so that those days are over the families need support integrated care and there's no question that because of the communication that people like you have provoked provoked and there are great examples of this there are leaders in many countries who have established uh, family uh, networks the new patient 
is not as lost anymore. And I really want to compliment you for doing that and giving of yourself and exposing of yourself to people really understanding your own physiology has made it much easier for them to be safe and feel good about their own child's physiology. So oh. as a, as a provider, I want to thank you for making me a better surgeon. Oh, I can't thank you enough. I'm very humbled by your words. And for anyone who was unaware, when I wrote the book, I asked you to write the, uh, the introduction to the book because of the way you made me feel when I first um, met you and decided to um, talk openly and your encouragement sort of like you inspired me to um, go ahead and do it. Plus with the connection with Dr. Kelly, of course. Yes, that was a, that was an amazing moment. We should uh, we should have told that history because uh, really the origin of care really began, I believe, in Melbourne, Australia, with um, with Dr. Kelly, uh, who learned from Dr. Stevens, going forth to Boston and actually teaching Dr. Pena about an operation, which then Dr. Pena revised, improved and then launched in 1980. So the origin of care of this, pa this patient group actually started in your, in your very city. Uh, yeah, and Greg, Dr. In, Stevens in was, Dr. Stevens operated on me when I was just a baby. So you, you called me a, a walking museum, I think, when you first met me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know what, with this, with this podcast, you might wanna share uh, the words that I wrote for your book. Um, because I think they, um, people may want to read exactly what I wrote, um, and I still mean it to this day, a relic to your, um, I would say to your first book, right? Your second book is, uh, is what this podcast is somewhat based on. But your first yeah. book, you need to share that, that writing with, um, with the audience. Right, right. I, I really appreciate it, sir. And th once again, thanks for giving us your valuable time. And it's, um, yeah, it's an honor to have you on our podcast. And uh, hopefully I'll see you next year. If we, our border, borders get open, I'll be able to come over and catch up again. From your mouth to God's ears. Let's do that. Okay, sir. Have a good day. Thank you, sir. Great to bye -bye. see you. Bye. Bye. Bye.